everyone. This is Brad Thomas with The Ground Up, and I'm back again with another CEO interview. And today I'm joined with Paul Pittman. Paul is the CEO of Farmland, uh, ticker symbol is FPI. And Paul, it's good to uh, be with you today. Thank you, Brad. Always happy to talk with you. Great. Well, Paul, I want to lead into a story that I read recently in the Financial Times titled, Bill Gates, Farmland Buying Spree Highlights Investment Appeal. So Bill Gates, uh, of course, the co-founder of Microsoft, is now uh, one of the, if not the largest private farmland owner in the United States with over 250,000 acres, according to the Financial Times. So uh, Bill, Gaines, Bill Gates is obviously uh, pretty passionate about farmland investing. Uh, why should the retail investor have that same passion for farming? Well, it, I think it's important to understand what uh, you know, Bill Gates and his you know, family have recognized about the asset class. It is fundamentally driven by ever-increasing global food demand in the face of scarcity of high-quality farmland. This is a zero-vacancy asset class, which has gradual increases in revenue per acre through time, either driven by commodity price increases, but more likely by production increases and production efficiencies. So what you've got in this asset class is a very stable long-term store of wealth that in all likelihood will stay ahead of inflation um, and probably stay ahead of the long-term return on many other asset classes. You know, long-term appreciation rates of farmland are in the five to 6% per annum range consistently. Long-term total return, meaning the land price, the land appreciation plus the revenue per acre you get on an annual basis from rents are in the 10 to 11% range over very long time frames. And, you know, the Gates family has recognized this, but most of the wealthiest families in America have been long-term investors in farmland. Uh, lots of people value this asset class. We put it into the public market to make it easy to access and to give investors, you know, basic daily liquidity on the asset class. But we think, um, you know, we, we, we're, we applaud the Gates investment. We are happy to see it. It's further confirmation that what we're doing is a good investment opportunity for retail investors. Great. Well, Paul, I want to uh, also tie that into um, some, some possible tax changes. Now, I'm, I'm working on a pretty detailed article now on the potential, uh, what, what could happen to 31 exchanges as part of the Biden administration's tax reform laws. Of course, infrastructure's uh, the big news today. So to fund that infrastructure, we're going to obviously see some changes to the tax structure in the U.S. Uh, there's been a lot of debate more recently on the 1031 exchange business model. Um, I'm of the opinion, Paul, that if, if, if the 1031 were to go away, and by the way, I don't think it'll go away completely. My, my kind of get, you know, get, get to the point of my article is, I think the 1031 is gonna have some changes, but probably not go away. They're gonna start with probably some, some, some limits uh, is my guess. But at any rate, uh, if 1031s were to go away, uh, wouldn't that actually be a catalyst for farmland? Uh, you know, Bill Gates doesn't have a 1031 uh, type structure. In other words, an upread structure uh, at his disposal, whereas farmland has uh, the ability to use upread shares 
for currency for uh, you know for for farmers. So, what are your thoughts on 1031 and the potential for for you to utilize upreach shares um, more so in the future? Well, we, we certainly would like to, to use our upreach shares. A lot of the growth in this company uh, came from uh, upreach structured transactions. You know, we we hope that a significant portion of 1031 uh, rules continue. Um, you know, even if even if taking them away might be on the margin beneficial for our company, I think it's negative for the economy and wealth creation of citizens overall. So we certainly hope those rules uh, stay in place. Um, but you know, I don't I don't know. I'll be looking forward to reading your article. We think that yes, though on the on the margin, if you got rid of 1031, we'll have slightly more opportunities for upreach because it just lessens the alternative somebody has for tax deferral, uh, you know, through making a, a further investment. Great. Well, uh, Paula, of course, your company is internally managed. Uh, we know that's one differentiator from your, I guess, closest peer in the farming REIT sector. What other differentiators do you see with farmland overall, besides the fact that you are internally managed? Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I assume you're referring to Gladstone, which is our kind of closest peer. Um, we have a, a, a somewhat different strategy than Gladstone. And, and, you know, you should talk to them about what their strategy is. But what I perceive it as as an outsider is they are more oriented towards specialty crops and vegetable crops, uh, vegetable crops directly into human consumption, specialty crops meaning citrus, tree nuts. We take the view that the story is global food demand increases in the face of land scarcity. And that's really a, a bet on all types of farmland and all types of crops. So instead of building a portfolio that's very focused on specialty crops and um, vegetables, we're building a portfolio that has specialty crops and vegetables, but also has a substantial amount of uh, grain farms. And that's because the largest pieces of the nationwide ag economy are the primary grains, uh, corn, soybeans, and wheat. Uh, and if you if you avoid having a, a, an, a, you know, a significant, in fact, majority of your portfolio focused on those crops, what happens essentially is that you have, um, you've created a portfolio that is, is very focused on consumer preference and consumer demand increases for a few key products um, like strawberries, like uh, tree nuts, pistachios, uh, citrus, um, other vegetables generally. And we just think that's the mistake. We think you're concentrating risk by making that approach uh, as opposed to this broad approach that, that in our view anchors yourself to that big story, global food demand in the face of land scarcity. In terms of your, your growth, you've had a you know, pretty, pretty uh, impressive growth going back, you know, I guess five, five six years or so. Um, you know, going from, you know, 200 million and 14 to 350 million to 650 million. Then you had the acquisition, uh, one, over 1 billion. You've kind of maintained this billion dollar market uh, or si asset, total assets I'm referring to. What, Paul, what, what do you see out there? Do you think there are any opportunities for any consolidation in terms of your, your, your pipeline? I know you've kind of bought a lot of these one-off deals individual farmers. Are there any portfolio opportunities out there 
for you to continue to scale up your business or do you plan to pursue more of a uh, regular pattern of just the kind of these one-off transactions? Well, yeah, we, we, would, we certainly investigate all the portfolio opportunities that exist. We do think achieving scale uh, makes uh, higher returns for our shareholders over time because of the efficiencies that we spread our overheads across. So we look at uh, portfolio opportunities that are, that are available from time to time. But I think most of the growth that we will have as a company is going to come uh, you know, from a series of individual transactions. You know, this, this, you know, we have done some of the biggest uh, ag transactions done in the United States ever, um, but, and we'll probably continue to be competitive when those opportunities occur. But you really need to be willing to focus on growing uh, the, this portfolio one farm at a time and continuing to grow it. We're set up to do that pretty efficiently, and, and that's just necessary. Great. I want to go back to that, you know, that 100% occupancy, which I know is a really one of the key value propositions for the farming sector. But I think you had less than 2,000 acres that was really unleased as of, the, I guess, the latest 10K. Um, so again, virtually 100% occupancy. Um, how do you do that? How do you maintain that 100% occupancy model? I just, I'm just curious, you know, that seems too good to be true. Yeah, so, so, so the, and even to understand that couple thousand acres to say it's unleased, it's unleased in the part of the year when there's snow on it. Okay. Not really unleased, right? You get paid, you get, I mean, it's unleased in a technical accounting sense, but you, we get the same rent on that farm as long, even if a lease expires in December or November and you release it in March or whatever, you get the same annual rent on the farm. You don't miss that three or four month window in terms of the cash you collect. Um, and the reason for that is these farms are leased for the growing season. That's where all the value is. A farm is, is again, technically leased during the winter, but nobody's really paying you for the use of that farm when the ground's frozen. They're paying you for the use of that farm when the spring comes. So, so the reason that you maintain this zero vacancy, and it's not just us, it's industry-wide, um, is that the fundamental demand for food is, and the foodstuffs grown on these farms is essentially insatiable, right? Um, elasticity of demand for food is different than any other product for practical purposes. If you see a price increase on corn and you're a buyer of corn, here are your two choices let those cows in that barn die of starvation or pay whatever price it takes. And I could repeat that, you know, if it's a direct food consumption product for humans, are you really going to let your kids go hungry? Well, you know, maybe at some price and maybe there's substitution and things like that, but this is a very different product. And if you just think about how you lead your own life in a common sense way, you know, if, if, if copper prices got so really high, you just don't buy any copper. But if food prices get really high, you figure out how to still to buy it. And it's just always going to be that way. Right. The other thing that's going, going on is most of the primary commodities are storable. They will eventually be sold, even in an era of surplus. So you're better off growing those crops. As, you know, as an individual producer, you're better off renting the land, growing the crop, and... Um, 
you know, and continuing to sell it even for a low price, because if you have higher volume, your revenue per acre will still be strong. And you, you take all those things together and what you end up with is you have an incentive, a set of incentives in that marketplace for a farmer to always rent additional land, even if that individual farm appears uneconomic to rent that year, when he thinks about it across his entire operation, he probably is lowering his overheads on all the rest of his acres such that he increases farm-wide profitability, even if when now analyzed on an individual basis, a given farm looks unprofitable, it's not actually unprofitable across that farmer's entire operation because he doesn't need any more equipment. He doesn't need any more tiny amount of additional labor, probably his own, so not really paid labor. Um, doesn't need any more knowledge. All the, you know, he gets, he gets essentially adds those acres and gets a relatively low cost structure on those acres, which makes his whole operation more profitable. Great. Well, uh, kind of, I got two more questions for you, Paul. One is um, the, you know, we've been covering farmland since really the IPO. And of course, you know, we had, you had a difficult year in 2018 as a result of uh, an, an article that went out uh, that caused a pretty drastic share price reduction. Uh, I know there's that's still kind of finding its way through the legal process, but uh, now kind of looking forward, uh, or at least looking backwards through the entire period of time since we've been covering farmland, you now have just recently, I guess in early March, hit uh, an, really an all-time high of almost $15, $14.76 a share, pull back recently, uh, but uh, I did see that um, you've, the company has, has bought back an impressive 7.6 million shares from 2018 through 2020 at an average price of around $6.50 per share compared to, to, again, the share price today, which is roughly about $11.27. So, I mean, certainly that's been a, a tool at your disposal how do you how do you look at you know the growth of the company outside of the share buybacks I just referenced? What is the plan for farmland to increase the cash flow per share uh, going going into uh, 2021? Yeah, so so just a, you know a couple of things that, that are important going to the buyback. You know we believe we did that buyback at about 50 percent of what that stock was worth at the time we bought those shares back. We think we had an NAV of about. $13 a share. Today, I'd say the NAV is a little higher because farmland's gone up. It's about $14 a share now. You're getting rapid appreciation in farmland. So we did that as tactical. We didn't like doing it, frankly. We didn't want to shrink the size of the company. But if you're that undervalued, it's a smart application of capital to buy in your own shares. And we've done so. You know, the, the, the profitability or the accretion to the existing shareholders on a liquidation kind of analysis is fantastic to have bought in that much that much stock at, at half price. Turning now to, you know, kind of growth, and now that we've got our stock higher, we're not likely to be as aggressive about buying back those shares. Um, what, we're, what we want to do is to gradually delever the company by investing in farmland uh, with, you know, often with uh, just equity into those farms. Uh, we've reduced debt quite a bit. Uh, whenever we sold a farm, uh, you know, we are arbitrage the private market value of farmland against the public market to generate the cash we used for the, for the buyback. Um, and so we were selling farms at a, you know, average 15% or greater premium to what we had invested in those farms. 
and then buying back our stock at a 50% discount. And every time we sold a farm, we'd end up reducing debt because those farms usually had about 50 cents on the dollar of investment was in the form of debt. And we'd pay the debt down. We've also made, made and continue to make some additional debt reductions over and above that. So, you know, we want to get back to growth, but we're very mindful of kind of total shareholder return, which is a combination of obviously dividend and, and price. And so I think, you, you, you know, we're likely to see us uh, gradually try to grow the company uh, with, you know, excess cash we have on the balance sheet, um, possibly uh, with, you know, um, upreach structure and, uh, you know, additional shares being issued to, to acquire farms. And you'll see that, uh, you know, happen. As far as cash flow recovery, we think there'll be some cash flow recovery just from the, the specialty crop recovery that comes from COVID. Uh, we are in an environment today, uh, first time in probably five years, where you can get meaningful rent increases when a rent comes up for renegotiation because farmer profitability is stronger than it has been in a, in a long, long time. The way, the way industry generally works is that in a strong farm economy for the farmer, you can push rent increases. Then it's sort of those rent increases essentially plateau. They don't come down very much, but they're not going to be able to go up in that tougher environment. And then they gradually start to rise again when you come out of the negative cycle and go back into a positive cycle for individual farmers. So we're in that positive cycle. We would hope for pretty substantial rent increases, which obviously increases in cash flow as well. Thank you. And I did, I did look, you, it looks like you got, you booked a 16.8% average realized gain from 2018 to 2020 on disposition. So good job there. Um, finally, I want to touch on dividend, Paul, is, um, you know, obviously you, you know, cut the dividend as many REITs did. Um, you were kind of early to it. I know a lot of it was, I guess, to preserve capital for the, for the lawsuit, among other things. Um, but now you've got a you know, a, a kind of a, a, a lower yield, obviously a lot driven by the share price uh, that we discussed, 1.8% uh, dividend yield. But at 22 cents a share, do you feel like that's sustainable currently in the current environment that you've got right now? Yeah, we're, we're 20 cents a share is our annual dividend. And so we, we would uh, intend to maintain that dividend. Um, you know, look, we'd like to have a covered dividend. Everybody would. Um, and we think we, you know, we think that if you adjust for, all the excess litigation costs and the COVID impacts, we would have had a covered dividend in 2020. But, but, but you know, this portfolio of farmland as the asset sales we've made shows is always appreciating. It's even appreciating uh, in a tough market and in a good farm market, it'll appreciate even faster. So I think there's a back to this point that I, that I started with You've got to understand that farmland creates value two ways. And this is why Bill Gates and his family buys it. You get current yield. And as far as long-term value goes, more importantly, you get appreciation. We're comfortable distributing a little bit of that appreciation to investors if we need to, to maintain a stable dividend. You know, we're happy, frankly, with uh, the relatively low dividend we have today, because what we think we've done is we've gotten a group of investors today that recognize that asset class for what's so powerful about the asset class, which is that study long-term appreciation and secondarily is concerned about current yield. That, that reflects 
what farmland is in the private market. And in my view, we would, we would like you know, the public market to reflect the private market characteristics as much as possible. This is a long-term store of value, modest current yield, solid long-term growth and asset value. And so if the mathematics suggests you're quote unquote over-distributing, you're not over-distributing if you think about it in the context of total value creation in that farm and that farm portfolio. Because of course, as a farm appreciates over time, we don't have to sell the farm. We can always just borrow a little more money if we wanted to against that farm. Still, the, the leverage ratio is 50% of the value of the farm, but the value of the farm's moved up in the five years since you owned it. So we're not completely you know, uh, focused on having distribution be exactly equal to cash flow. We want to just make sure distribution is such that we, you know, we've got the we've got the, the stability to maintain it, because uh, you know, reducing our dividend, which we did now right after the road of Fortune attack to fund legal costs, fundamentally, that's devastating. It's terrible. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm I was the largest shareholder when we did that. I'm now the second largest shareholder uh, in the company. Um, it's, you know, that's a hard thing for me and every other shareholder to face, but we needed to do it, and obviously in a in a three-year, you know, uh, three-year rearview mirror view, um, it worked for us. It was the right thing to do. Great. Well, uh, Paul, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I know you always bring us a lot of insight into the farming sector, which we uh, greatly appreciate. And congratulations on the on the share price move up. Uh, I know it came came back, pulled back a little bit, but hitting that all-time new high was, uh, I'm sure, meaningful as well. So. Uh, Thank you for your time today and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Okay. Thank you very much, Brad. Thank you.